Welcome to Remnant Radio. Glad to have you listening. We're here to share Jewish testimonies about trusting in Yeshua, also known as Jesus. Our focus is to the Jew first and also the Gentile, because God has not rejected his people and has made the two one new man. Now, here are your hosts for Remnant Radio, Joseph Trocchio and Howard Somerville. Thanks, Eric. That was my friend and voice actor, Eric Harthen from Metro Detroit. Welcome again, listeners. This is Joseph Trocchio, along with my brother and Messiah, Howard Somerville, bringing you some of the best Messianic Jewish testimonies the ear will hear. We hope you will be blessed and challenged by our guests and their stories of faith in Israel's Messiah, Yeshua. Today is Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. It's about 7 p.m., and tonight's guest is Rabbi Glenn Harris from Congregation Shema Israel in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Rabbi Glenn is a very special guest uh, for me, for Howard, and our mutual friend Bill Reynolds, because Rabbi Glenn uh, is a Bible teacher at Congregation Shema Israel, and we sit under his sound biblical teaching on Thursday nights, and we're very grateful for that. I met Rabbi Glenn about six years ago as I was searching for some answers to questions about Israel, the Jewish people, the church, and how uh, they all relate in Scripture as well as in real life today. Rabbi Glenn uh, answered my questions. He answered them with very good words and, and good resources and great answers, of course. And to this day, I am grateful to Jesus for Rabbi Glenn and his friendship, his time and patience and more than anything, his passion and love for Jesus. Amen, Howard? I would say an amen to that as well. And uh, he is our rabbi, and he's my rabbi. <laughs> Good one. Um, in a few moments, we will start the interview with Rabbi Glenn. But first, I want to share just a few things about him. He is married to Alexandra, and they have four children, one uh, in heaven. Rabbi Glenn was raised in a, quote, nice Jewish home in Los Angeles, close quote. That's from um, his bio at the, um, uh, at the Congregation Shema uh, website. Uh, he is currently on staff at Congregation Shema as a Bible teacher, worship leader, and administrator. He was, uh, he was for some time, I think it was 10 years or so, with Jews for Jesus. In 2007, he graduated uh, from Michigan Theological Seminary, which is now Moody Bible Institute, with a Master's in Divinity. Rabbi Glenn has blessed the Metro Detroit community, and uh, as far as I know, well beyond Metro Detroit for almost 20 years. And now, uh, you, the listener, can expect the same. Rabbi Glenn, it's good to have you here. God bless you, bro. Um, welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. It's a uh great to be with you. It's an honor to be with you. Um, you're very kind in all that you said. You're welcome. You're welcome. I wish I could say yeah. more. In fact, I know I could say more, but obviously that that would go on for quite some time. So Not if you want to continue to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> figures. Figures. Uh, bro, 
Um, why don't Why don't we start the in- interview with the with the obvious starting place? Why don't you just start to tell us part of your story, and then we'll we'll, sure. we'll take it from there. Sure, absolutely. Um, I grew up in a uh, in a Jewish home in Los Angeles, California. Um, both sides of my family are Jewish. Both sides of the family came uh, here to the United States from Eastern Europe. Um, and about the same time, my father's side of the family had settled in uh, New York. My mother's side of the family briefly on the East Coast, but then moved to uh, Santa Monica, California. So my mom grew up on the West Coast. My parents uh, met and married in 1957. I came along two years later. And we were not a religious Jewish family. We were just an average Jewish family. We went to synagogue, you know, a couple times a year, high holidays, or if somebody, friend of the family, the son or the daughter was having a bar or bat mitzvah, um, Pesach, you know, Passover. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. We were not religious. And then uh, I think part of the turning point, though, for me was that when I was um, just shy of eight years of age, Maybe I was even as young as seven, six or seven. My grandfather, my grandmother passed away. My grandfather was now a widower, and he came to live with us. And so we moved into a bigger house, uh, which had a nice uh, room that my grandpa uh, could live in. And he had never been religious, but I guess at that point in his life, he be- he began to become very religious. Uh, he was going to synagogue a couple times a day. He would leave the house in the morning. Uh, it was interesting in the morning when I would come down to breakfast, I would pass by his room, and he always left the door to his room cracked a little bit, just open a little bit. And as I would walk by, I would see him davening. He would be uh, bending over, and he would be uh, uh, up and down pray. He was praying. He was praying the morning prayer, shacharit prayers. And uh, so he became very religious. Now, my parents were not religious, so what happened was when I turned eight years of age, there commenced something of a tug-of-war because my grandfather wanted me to go to Hebrew school to learn what it really means to be a Jew, to identify as a Jew, to know our history, to know Hebrew, to have a bar mitzvah. And to my parents, it wasn't that important, but my grandfather you know, prevailed and uh, also offered to pay for my Hebrew school education, which was not cheap. Of course, you know, if you ask an eight-year-old, hey, how do you feel about going to Hebrew school? It's like, come on, I already go to school five days a week. Are you mm-hmm. gonna give me, now i got to go to more school? But I was promised that, you know, when I turned 13, after I finished Hebrew school, I'd have a bar mitzvah, I'd have a big party, with. I could invite all my friends, I'd get lots mm-hmm. of presents, and they had me at presents. So uh, <laughs> I, I agreed to uh, Hebrew school, uh, went through the four or five years, learned about you know our Jewish culture, our history, our people. I learned to read and write Hebrew. But I will tell you, Joan, it's important for our listeners to Remnant Radio to understand that uh, in Hebrew school, we didn't study the Bible. <laughs> and uh, I think there's this assumption that Jewish people somehow, by virtue of being Jewish, automatically know the Bible, and nothing could be further from the truth. 
But uh, so, you know, I went through Hebrew school when I was 13, had my bar mitzvah. And of course, you know, technically speaking, that's when you become an adult in the eyes of the Jewish community. My first adult decision was no more Hebrew school. <laughs> and, uh, and I stopped going to synagogue for the most part, other than the high holidays, because I figured, look, my parents don't go. They don't think it's important. Why should I? And uh, besides, I could be doing much more fun things on Saturday morning, like playing football with my buddies. So anyway, uh, that was pretty much that until I was um, a senior in high school. As a senior in high school, I began really contemplating uh, what life is about, ultimate kinds of questions. Who am I? Why am I on the earth? Why am I here? When I die, what happens to me? And those three questions form the framework of what would be basically a four-year uh, odyssey as I tried to, on a part-time basis, figure out what was true about the universe. Of course, the other part of the time I wanted to party with my friends like anyone else, but I was on a part-time spiritual search, and I, I was looking through a lot of different um, uh, organizations, a lot of different movements, uh, different books and philosophies. A lot of it was New Age, and I was very influenced by the New Age movement, and somehow felt that uh, we all just sort of had to discover the God that was within us. <laughs> but, you know, after after a couple of years of fruitless searching and feeling like I started to feel, Joe, like the people writing these books didn't even know the answers, but they were they were articulate enough to paint everything in very flowery language. And I, I felt like initially I felt like, well, I'm just not enlightened enough to understand what they're talking about. Of course, in retrospect, I don't th like I said, I don't think they even knew what they were talking about, but they could make it sound really good. And so it was like dangling a carrot. Just keep buying our books, keep taking our classes, keep doing this, and ultimately maybe you'll be as enlightened as we are. I don't know. Anyway, I just got tired of it, of, of non-answers, very flowery non-answers, but non-answers. And, um, and it turns out one of my the, – the man I thought – really was my spiritual mentor. Turns out the guy was a flat-out bigot. I mean, the guy was a flat-out racist, and I found out one night as he and I were sitting at a Denny's having dinner, and he just starts spewing out this stuff using the N-word. I'm like, inside me, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. How can this guy get... What could he possibly teach me if that's what he's all about? And right about that time that I was becoming so disenchanted with New Age, a co-worker of mine named Mandy uh, called me up at home one evening. I worked for a, like a mom-and-pop type company, and everybody knew everybody's business, and she had heard that I was going to like this little church. Uh, you should think of church with, a, with quotes around it because it was a New Age mm. center, but it used the word church. And so she was asking me about that because she knew I was Jewish. She thought that was kind of interesting that I was going to a church, but when I told her what we were all about, she realized that uh, I really didn't know what I was into. And then Mandy did the unthinkable. She invited me to go to church with her. <laughs> she went to, to, uh, to a very large evangelical church. Uh, I think many listeners will be familiar with it, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. And she invited me to come to a service with her, not a Sunday morning. It was like a Friday night. They had a concert series. They would have Christian uh, rock bands come in and stuff, and then they would uh, people would share their testimonies. 
anyway, we we went. I, I agreed to go with her for two kind of dumb reasons. Number one, because, you know, I'm, I'm a nice Jewish boy. We don't go to church. But she invited me to go, and the, one of the reasons I had to go was because I was always claiming to be a very open-minded person. And I couldn't very well say no and keep up that pretense. So I sort of had to go. The other thing was she was pretty, and even though she had a boyfriend, I thought maybe I have a chance. I don't know. Anyway, so we, we got there. Uh, the band came on. They played. They were good musicians, but it wasn't exactly my kind of music. My kind of music was more like Van Halen, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, stuff like that. And these guys were good musicians, but it was much too mellow for my tastes. Mm. Well, they got done, and out comes this guy. And now I have to tell you that I was waiting for the guy in the three-piece suit with the brill cream hairdo, the 50-pound Bible, and the southern drawl to come out and say, all right, y'all need Jesus. Uh, and that's what I was sure was going to happen. But what happened was out came this guy with long blonde hair, blue jeans, sneakers, and a Hawaiian shirt. Guy was a total surfer. And he was also very funny. But I'm figuring, okay, I know what this guy's doing. He's trying to loosen us up, and we're, we're gonna, he's going to drop our defenses, and then they'll bring the man out. Well, after a few minutes, I realized, you know what, this is the man. And he's talking about Jesus and having a personal relationship with God through Jesus, and that if we wanted to go to heaven, God had made the way possible through the Messiah, and, and basically that Jesus was God's terms if we wanted to have everlasting life. Well, yeah, I'm a Jewish boy, but I know a good deal when I hear it. Um, I don't have to sign on any dotted lines. Nobody's asking me for money. Um, and I'm being offered that very thing I had been searching for for four years, answers to the question, who am I, why am I here, and what happens when I die? And this guy was answering those questions as though I handed him a piece of paper with them written on it, and, um, and the long and the short of it was he invited people to walk forward, what we call an altar call, and uh, if anybody was willing, they right then and there, uh, give their lives to Jesus and say yes to him. And so that March evening, 1981, not knowing, really not having any kind of theology, not knowing the half of what I was, get, was getting myself into, I just knew a good deal when I heard it. I walked forward, I asked Jesus to come into my life, and I figured, okay, well, <laughs> maybe this will work. I mean, you could say it was on an experimental basis, but here I am, you know, 37 years later, I guess it took. <laughs> so that's how I came to know Jesus, because um, A, the, the world and all the, the philosophies and the New Age culture just didn't have answers um, that, were, that really answered my questions. And I also had r realized along the way that what I really wanted more than anything else in the world was to be loved and to know who God is. <laughs> And uh, as of that night, I came into a very personal relationship with Jesus, and by the grace of God, I've never had to look back. Wow. Phenomenal. I, I have a question for you now. You, you, you come to Christ. Uh, you were still living at home? Or? Actually, I was—no, uh, at that point, I was 22 years of age. I was living on my own. Okay. But eventually, your family— would hear about this in some form or fashion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I made sure to tell my family, you know, right away. Yeah. And they didn't exactly, you know, 
you know, when I when I came home and visited my folks and said, Mom, Dad, I, I've come to believe that Jesus is the one. Uh, they didn't say, hallelujah, we've been praying. I, you know, no. <laughs> hey, let's call all our friends over. Our sons become a Christian. You know, that's not what happens in a Jewish family. My parents were, um, they weren't angry, angry. Uh, they didn't get bent out of shape. They didn't uh, try to argue, you know, doctrinally or theologically because they understood that would have been hypocritical. They they didn't know what they believed, and, and they didn't go to synagogue. And so uh, for them, they didn't so much get angry as they were embarrassed. You know, what are they supposed to say to all their Jewish friends? You know, our, our son's become a believer in Jesus. Wow. Um, and back in 1981, there were a lot fewer of us than there are now. So it was kind of, it wasn't completely unheard of, but uh, it was certainly considered freakish. So that was their response. And they they didn't try to say, oh, you've made a terrible mistake, don't do this. They said, well, you should, you should sample all different religions. Try a little of everything. Don't just settle on one thing. So their idea was if I go the smorgasbord route, you know, so they're thinking maybe maybe this Jesus thing will be a passing phase. But I will tell you that after about two years, and I was continuing to believe and growing in my belief and growing in my knowledge, uh, that's when things got real tense, because now they realize this isn't a passing phase. We really have to deal with this. Of course, that also passed. And, uh, and what kind of healed things up with my parents and I, uh, and in a big way, was in 1985, and at this point I had uh, left uh, a sales job with a jewelry manufacturer to go to Bible college because I sensed that God was calling me uh, to go into full-time uh, ministry, and uh, and I, I had been uh, I had enrolled in Bible college, and I was only a year away from my bachelor's degree when I was diagnosed diagnosed with testicular cancer. I had to withdraw from school immediately. I, it, I was urged by the urologist that I needed immediate uh, surgery and possibly chemotherapy. My parents invited me to come back down. I, this was in Washington State. So my parents invited me to come back down to L.A. to stay with them while I had to weather this storm. And it was while I was back at home with my parents, a couple of really wonderful things happened in the midst of the difficulty of all this. The first is they realized, you know what, our son believes differently than we do, but he's our son and we love him, and he's fighting for his life, and we're going to fight with him. Uh, that's all that matters. And so uh, they kind of put things in perspective. And the other thing was, was that uh, as soon as I got back to L.A., and, and I'm looking for you know, uh, I'm looking through the yellow pages for a good church nearby. It dawns on me, you guys are going to love this, okay? It dawns on me, hey, I'm in L.A. There's a few Jews here in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's actually like one the third largest Jewish community in the United States. Anyway, so I'm thinking maybe there's a, a Messianic synagogue that I could go to. Not only was there one, but in a, a city the size of Los Angeles, which you could, to, to, you could stay in L.A. County and drive for three and a half, four hours and still be in L.A. County. Um, and in, in all of Los Angeles County, there was a Messianic synagogue, and it was 10 minutes from their house. Wow. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, I began going, and it, it's called Ahavatzion. It's a Messianic synagogue in Beverly Hills, California. Still there? And um, still and there? I began going there, and that became my home congregation. My parents would come to services once in a while, and they thought it was just beautiful. And I think they were reassured that whatever I might believe about Jesus, I absolutely identified as a Jew. And to them, that was the most important thing. So those two things kind of put everything in perspective for them. Wow. Wow. Is the congregation still there? Yes, Ahavatzion is still there, uh, meeting in the same location on Beverly Drive in uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, they meet actually in the in a little annex of uh, of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church, which is a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. They're still there after all these years. Kind of like Congregation Shema Israel inside Bloomfield Hills Baptist Church, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. it's a different style, uh, mm. you know. But but yeah, same <laughs> same thing. Um, although I would say that at uh, Bloomfield Hills Baptist. We at Shema Yisrael, we have more of a an ongoing working relationship. We're not just mm. renters mm. at Bloomfield Hills Baptist. I mean, we do stuff together. We do outreach together. We uh, we fellowship together at times, and that didn't happen um, at the at the Lutheran Church. It wasn't nearly as much commonality. Mm. But I, I to this day, I, I I feel like I owe a debt of thanks to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod because they, among all the denominations, have long been committed to bringing the good news of Jesus to Jewish people. Wow. And so I'm, I'm just grateful to God for them. Wow, that's cool. I, I like that. You know, when you, I'm listening to your story, and I'm thinking of my story, and you had that moment <clears throat> when you, at the altar call, you, you just, yeah, nothing else is working, um, but you had the right attitude. And it was just a simple um, s- commitment slash uh, belief, um, kind of repentance too, or just a real, like a commitment? Or was it belief? What, what, what was it? Well, one thing I knew for sure, I had been saying no to Jesus all my life. And repentance in that moment uh, constituted saying yes to him. Saying, I'm sorry, all these years, there you were, just waiting for me and, and offering this to me, and I didn't want anything to do with you all because because I thought it would threaten my Jewish identity. I'm sorry, and I, I, and I, want, to, I want to follow you, and I ask you to come into my life. So repentance in that moment had to do with repenting from my unbelief mm. and my longstanding rejection of Jesus and now saying yes to him. Yeah, wow. That's gosh, it's so simple. Just really so simple. Um, so discipleship, uh, someone uh, discipling you and mentoring you. How long was that uh, after you came I, to faith? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> nobody was discipling me. Wow. It's one of the disadvantages of the megachurches is that uh, a lot of people, it's very easy for people to fall through the cracks. I had friends at church, but nobody really took me under their wing and said, Okay, now that you believe it's important that you kind of understand, not only do you need to get to know Scripture, but you need to understand some of the things that you can expect to happen in the days, the weeks, the months, and years ahead. And it's called mentoring or discipleship. Nobody did that for me. Hmm. And it was actually um, 
it it uh, it proved uh, it proved troubling because I was going by my feelings. Some days I felt so close to God, and some days I felt a million miles away. And because nobody had taken me under their wing to disciple me, I kind of figured my salvation hinged on how I felt from hour to hour or from day to day. I loved God. I loved Jesus. I was enthralled as I began to read the, the, the New Testament. Um, but I was still writing by my feelings. And some days I just felt the weight of my sin, like I realized hmm. I was a sinful person. Hmm. We all are. But it just had never dawned on me before. Now I have this awareness of it, but I didn't know what, what to do. Hmm. And I had uh, doubts, and, and so nobody was discipling me. I felt like I was on a roller coaster. During that time, moved back up to L.A. My dad invited me to, to uh, go to work for him. I think he was bringing me back up to L.A. to get me away from my new Christian friends. Hmm. But in any case, and I didn't have the... Because, again, because nobody had discipled me, I said, sure, Dad, I'd love to do that hmm. without praying about it, without committing it to the Lord. Things that you and I might uh, take for granted, but uh, but as somebody who was not being discipled, I didn't know. You commit your decisions to the Lord. You wait. You look for his leading. I didn't know these things, so I just, like, jumped on ahead. And, um, you know, I get back up to L.A., I was in and out of fellowship. I started to have a lot of doubts, and and like I said, this roller coaster. And I ended up for about a year, just walking away. Hmm. I still believed in Jesus in my heart. I, there was no way of escaping it. He absolutely is the Messiah, and and all of Scripture and everything just points to that. So there was no question about that. But I just I couldn't live it. And I couldn't deal with the doubts, and I didn't know what to do, how to process those doubts. Of course, they're, they're, it's simple enough if somebody you know, mentors you and shows you, you know, it's not based on your feelings. Your feelings don't determine historical truth, but I didn't have that benefit. And I ended up walking away from the Lord for about a year and uh, rededicated my life to him um, uh, about a year later at, the, at that point living in Washington State. Wow. So, yeah, it's important. I mean, what we need to be doing, and you've heard me say this before, and I'm glad I have the opportunity to say this uh, on this show and on Remnant Radio, is that um, Jesus didn't call us to go and make believers. He called us to go and make disciples. And disciple-making involves sharing life together, spending time together, studying together, being challenged. And I don't see that happening, unfortunately. Mm. There's, there's far too little discipleship going on. We're, we're all excited when we hear about, oh, 5,000 people or 10,000 people. We've got all these brand-new believers, but they need to be discipled. And frankly, any one of us can do it. Any of us can disciple a new believer. You just take them under your wing, take them places with you, have Bible study with them, answer their questions as those inevitable questions do come up. You you share life together, and that's something I'd like to see more of. That's a good word. Absolutely. That's a good word and a good reminder. God bless you, Rabbi Lyon. And, and, oh, thank you. And, you know, the other thing is that I'm I'm looking at— the church today, and I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm talking about people who are, who you know, they, they by by the way they describe themselves, would be serious about the Lord. 
And yet I'm still finding that there's a very low level of biblical literacy. Mm. People don't even know, like, okay, let's see, Jesus said he would rise on the third day in fulfillment of Scripture. Where in Scripture? And people don't know the answer to that. Oh, thank you. Uh, if somebody came along and said, uh, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? Half of them couldn't answer the question, and the other half who could answer the question couldn't tell you where in the Bible it prophesied the birthplace of the Messiah. You know, people are not familiar with the prophecy of Daniel 9, which, you know, Daniel chapter 9 essentially establishes two things. Number one, that the Messiah would die and rise again. Number two, that he had to have come before the destruction of the Second Temple. People don't even know Daniel 9. Yeah, Rabbi um, Glenn, I got to interrupt you. Can you can you sure. kind of get into some some detail about that? Can you just elaborate about that? Because that the timing is incredible. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. Please, this is something it's that... It's so incredible, Joe. It's so incredible and so specific that, um, and it led so many people, including some very prominent rabbis, to become believers in Jesus that finally the rabbis pronounced a curse on anybody who would attempt to calculate the time of the redemption based on this prophecy. That's how powerful and how specific it is. Um, in Daniel 9, um, Daniel has been having these visions in the night of things that were to come. And beginning at verse 24, you know, he's told 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. 77s would work out to 490 years. Uh, adjusted because the, the, the Jewish calendar year is shorter than a Julian calendar year. Um, and, and you work it all out, and uh, it's broken in, that 70 weeks is broken into two segments. Uh, there's, the, there's the 62 weeks and there's the seven weeks. And it talks in Daniel chapter 9 about the fact that after the 62 weeks, it says, the Messiah will be cut off. And it says that, the Messiah will be cut off. That means put to death. And then it goes on to say that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, meaning Jerusalem and mm -hmm. the temple. Mm -hmm. And and it was so specific. Who destroyed the temple in 70 AD? It was Titus. Well, who's Titus? Well, he was a Roman general, but his father Vespasian was the emperor that makes him the prince. <laughs> I mean, it was so specific, and it shows that the Messiah would die, the temple would be destroyed, um, and, and frankly, um, it leaves us with a bit of a conundrum. The temple was destroyed, the genealogies are gone, the Messiah had to have come mm. and been established uh, as to their identity, prior to the destruction of the Second Temple, according to Daniel 9. Because anybody can come along and say they're the Messiah, but today there's no way to prove one's ancestral lineage. You can have traditions about it, but nobody can prove it. Those records are gone. So it's, it's just so powerful. And Daniel 9 became the source of contention and, and a number of prominent Jewish people uh, as a result of that, and as, as a result of studying Isaiah chapter 53, again, talking about the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, uh, that uh, basically the Jewish community steers clear of these things, 
And the rabbis eventually pronounced a curse on anybody who dared to study Daniel 9, because they saw what it led to, Jews believing in Jesus. What a spiritual war. It is unbelievably intense and so obvious. It's, un, it's unreal. The... Um, uh, I, I just I, I just lost a, a thought about something here. Okay, we've prayed. Well, one we, of the things. Well, let, let's do this, Joe. You had mentioned uh, as we were talking through the the various things we wanted to talk about tonight. You you did say that you wanted to talk about the deity of mm, Jesus. Yeah, and that's a big deal. I know you said it's big with you. It's big with me. And the fact is, biblically, it's big. <laughs> <laughs> all right because you know a right, person can I, I, say i believe in jesus yeah really but run with this mean? one what, rabbi what run run with this one please run with this one please this is really sure beautiful so please please talk sure. about this okay the question is was jesus just a teacher was he a prophet was he the messiah but and, and, and what is the nature of the Messiah? Is the Messiah just like a, an extraordinary man, but, but purely a man? Or is there something else? And the fact is that uh, the prophets of old knew that the Messiah was n- not going to be any ordinary human being. He was going to be something much more. The prophet Micah, speaking of the birthplace of the Messiah also points out in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that Messiah's origins Mm. are from long ago, Mm. from the days of eternity. Mm. Then you have uh, Daniel 7, where the Messiah is presented before God and given all glory and dominion and to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. But as anybody could tell you, Scripture also says, God says, I will not give my glory to another. So Jesus cannot be another. He's got to be part of the Godhead. Uh, That's a new one. Such as in Jeremiah 23 that speak of the Messiah being called Adonai Tzidkenu, which is translated the Lord, our righteousness. Now, I've given you just three or four, but there are several other prophecies that that uh, attest to the deity of the messiah uh, the during our conversations i mentioned that jeremiah 23 verse 5 and 6 have just been burned into my mind and it was because of reading dr fruchtenbaum who you recommended that i that i read yeah. it's amazing but that you just you just mentioned it but in my mind I'm thinking from what I read, the Lord, our righteousness in verses five and six, is that it describes the descendant of David as being, it's not just the Lord, but it's the Lord with all four capital letters. It's Yeah, the tetragrammaton. Yeah. Uh-huh. Clearly stated right there that the descendant of David is God. It's amazing. So you've got yep. the, the dual nature right there in just two verses uh that's unforgettable for me and i hope that any listeners would really ponder that because that's that's so blatant and so clear that uh that the messiah 
is divine. He's deity. And, and you know, if that's all we had to go on, Joe, that would be more than enough. Mm -hmm. But there's (laughs) even more. In John chapter 8, at Sukkot, the holiday of tabernacles, Yeshua is challenged as to his identity. And in chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, or 59, um, Jesus says, your father Abraham, he's speaking to the religious authorities, and he says, your father Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, the, the Jewish religious leaders are going, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? How can you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says right there, before Abraham was born, I am. He used the name that God attributed to himself in Exodus chapter 3, when he says to Moses, I am who I am, so say to, Mo- say to Pharaoh that I am, or excuse me, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. And Jesus not only used that name that supposedly nobody was supposed to utter, but attributed it to himself. But wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says that Messiah is before everything. In him all things were created— uh, that he is before all things, in him all things hold together. These are purely divine attributes. Now, the same thing happens uh, in the book of Hebrews, the very first chapter, uh, that the writer of Hebrews attests that Jesus is the creator. Hebrews chapter 1. Let me just uh, get there real quick and read this to you. Um, this is huge. Okay, it says this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So from, from Genesis to Revelation, I mean, mm. all of Scripture uh, bears witness that the Messiah is divine. Mm. Right, right. You can start in the Old Testament and show it, or you can start in the New Testament and show it, and they go together. Yes, indeed. Phenomenal. I I have a little personal testimony here real quick. I grew up in the Baptist church, went to Sunday school every Sunday, and we continually learned stories, uh, David and Goliath, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, um, Israel, Jerusalem. Um, But it wasn't until a—and I came to Christ when I was nine years old. But it wasn't until a couple years ago. Now, I, I would meet up with Joe every once in a while at uh, funeral not funerals, but weddings. And we got into a discussion, and Joe said to me, he said, you know, I, I'm going to this, this uh, Messianic Jewish Bible study, and let me tell you one of the things I've learned. And he was talking about Matthew 23, 39, I believe it is, where Jesus prophesied that he would not return until his people called for him. 
So I had read that verse so many times. And because Joe had been at your Bible studies, he explained to me what that meant. And I, I, I sat there dumbfounded for a moment. I said, how come I never saw that before? So the blessing of what you're doing goes from one person to another person mm. and pulled uh, Israel, which I always knew was there, but pulled it even more into the big picture. So that to me was just an amazing That's a beautiful testimony. Yeah. And this goes to the historical separation between the Jewish people and the body of Christ. Of course, the rabbis on their side were doing everything they could to prevent Jewish people from believing in Jesus. But unfortunately, beginning about the late 2nd and 2nd century, and certainly by the early 4th century, the Church did everything possible to extricate itself from its Jewish roots. Consequently, the things I'm teaching ought to be known by everybody and really should not be seen as anything unusual or extraordinary in terms of a body of belief. Amen. But because of that ages-old, you know, uh, political, as it were, separation between the Church and, and the Jewish people, and all the religious leaders having a vested interest in keeping that artificial divide going, it's left people um, uninformed about these things. Absolutely, absolutely. I was leading, I, I lead a small group uh, Bible study, and we were talking about the uh, ascension of Jesus from the Mount of Olives there. And I mentioned, I said, now he's going to return the same way. And somebody piped up and said, well, where does it say that? It doesn't say that there. <laughs> and, well, it does in Zechariah. And thanks to there you go. Thanks to what we've been studying in, in those things, I could turn right back there and say, well, here's where it says that. So uh, it, it's phenomenal what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know, know I, <laughs> I love the fact that more and more people are becoming biblically literate and putting all this together and experiencing those aha moments. <laughs> and frankly, um, the more Gentile Christians put all this stuff together and start talking to my Jewish people, um, the more we're going to see Jewish people coming to know the Lord. Amen. I agree. It's, I, I'm... I'm so excited where, in terms of my faith right now is, is the best it's ever been because everything just makes sense. It's, I, I, I'm amazed at where the Lord has, has brought me. I want to ask you a question, Rabbi Glenn. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you, uh, you have used the term uh, traitor in the past, and uh, the, the typical Jewish believer in Jesus is, is obviously considered a traitor. Please talk about that, how you deal with it, because just a little while ago you mentioned um, the more Gentile Christians begin to understand these things, the more they can uh, have an uh, impact on your people. And uh, um, your love for your people um, is, is big. I can feel it. Um, I can see it. You love your, your, your heritage and the whole thing, and you love your people. Um, just talk about the how you wrestle through being a bad guy 
and still love your people and how mm. um, how you can yeah. still um, uh, minister to all of us, to all, to all of us. Just talk about that. Okay, sure. Uh, because I think there's a lesson in it for everybody, not just for uh, Jewish people. But understand, first of all, understand that Jewish people do not disbelieve in Jesus because of the Holocaust. They don't disbelieve in Jesus because of the Spanish Inquisition. They don't uh, disbelieve in Jesus because of the pogroms of Europe. The fact is that uh, the rabbis have held, really locked our people in unbelief, going all the way back to the Pharisees of the first century. And as you look, for example, in John chapter 9, it was already decided that any Jewish people who would confess Jesus to be the Messiah were going to be excommunicated. So it's, it's been kind of an ironclad rule for 2,000 years. So something like that doesn't break down overnight. And Jewish people, for all the claimed reasons for not believing in Jesus, the real reason is because if they do, the rest of the Jewish community will turn against them. So there's there's excuses and there's rationalizations, but bottom line, Mm. um, the real reason, not just Jewish people, but most people don't believe in Jesus, is because they are afraid Mm. of what family or friends or community is going to say. So um, how do I deal with that? Well, initially, I... I took the wrong approach. Initially, I was trying to prove that I knew what I was talking about. You know, a Jewish person would say, what, are you in a cult? You've been brainwashed. And, and I would go to some lengths to show that I knew what I was talking about. I was very much in my right mind and could make the case for it. And what I was doing was hmm. not using my time well, and in a sense, doing that kind of casting pearls before swine thing. Mm. But it was all because I was trying to prove myself that I knew what I was talking about. I, in other words, I let it be about me. Mm. Now, what I have learned from all this is to make it clear when I'm in a debate or discussion with a Jewish person that it's not about me. It's easy enough to discredit Glenn Harris, uh, but they're going to have to do better than that. They're going to have to somehow discredit Jesus of Nazareth, and good luck with that. <laughs> so I've, I've also come to accept that um, being ostracized and considered an outsider to, the, to my own people, it's part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 13, he suffered outside the gate. Let us go to him outside the camp, Mm. bearing his reproach. So we need to be willing to be ridiculed or despised and and thought little of. Uh, and, And we just need to know in our hearts, it's enough to know that we have God's approval, and we don't have to prove ourselves to anybody. That's, I think, the most important thing I could share with people in terms of dealing with rejection. It's Mm. not about you. (laughs) 
and when you relax and just let it let let all those insults go right past you and go to the cross he he took those too hmm. let it all go past you and and you've heard me say this joe take the take the colombo approach <laughs> everybody always underestimated him <laughs> he looked like a bumbling uh uh absent-minded inept police lieutenant and you know he's searching his pockets he can't find his pad he can't find a pen and everybody thinks the guy's a dunce and he's happy to let them think that because eventually they let their guard down and nice he's job, got him. yep <laughs> so take the colombo approach let them think you're weird let them think you don't know what you're talking about it's okay you got nothing to prove um, if the person is of goodwill and truly of an open mind, they'll hear you out, and and you, you just point them to Jesus. It's a good word. It's a good word. Again, again, it's a good word from Rabbi Glenn. Yeah, absolutely. We have just one more question, though. We do? No, that was Columbo. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was Columbo's line. Oh, all right. Okay, I missed that. He always said one uh, more question. Uh, uh, just one more question. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got... Uh, our email that we exchanged about what we were going to talk about. And I, I think we covered a lot, but I wanted to, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about <clears throat> Zechariah. You've mentioned in teaching and I've made a note and every once in a while I will go to Zechariah and, and do some studying. Talk about Zechariah and the, uh, just the whole messianic aspect of that, because I know that's one of your favorite books. You've shared that. And I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. Can you just talk sure. about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, Zechariah contains several prophecies that are especially significant given the days in which we live. For example, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, and again in chapter 14, describes an end-time scenario in which Israel, the Jewish people, are back in the land— the nations are none too happy about it and conspire to surround Israel and attempt to destroy it. Now, prior to 1948, there was no nation of Israel. For the better part of 2,000 years, the land had been uh, renamed Palestine. And uh, while there were a smattering of Jewish people living there, there was no nation. Uh, our people were scattered to the four corners of the earth. So so you look at a prophecy like Zechariah 12, and if you had lived, let's say, in the 1800s or 1700s or whenever, um, you'd think, how can this ever be fulfilled? And here we are. Mm -hmm. As of 1948, the nation has come alive, and essentially in a day, and what do we see? The nations are none too happy about it. And the level of uh, animus against Jewish people seems to be increasing uh, consistently, and not just uh, in the Middle East. It's happening on college campuses around the United States. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. So I, I think it behooves us to be familiar with these prophecies in Zechariah 12 and 14. I mean, there's more there, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, at the very least, I feel like people should be familiar with that. And so as they see events unfolding each day in the news and what have you, uh, they they can have it in perspective. And of course, not just Zechariah, but it's important to interpret Scripture by Scripture. So naturally, you want to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 to kind of fill in that uh, portrait. Got it. Um, thank you, Rabbi Glenn. I, you know, I just I just want to sit here and talk and listen all night. I actually I love this. I just I just love it. It's um, it's really great. Um, uh, I, I think you kind of touched on this earlier, but let's maybe really get specific and focused, because, um, as you know, what what we hope is by doing this and and interviewing uh, Jewish believers and getting the word out, our hope is that somehow, somewhere, some way, uh, some uh, some person will come to faith, and Jew first, and also the Gentile. Uh, the hope is that someone someone will hear this and, and take um, take Jesus seriously. Please share some words. Amen. Please share some words for um, your Jewish people, your your your, your people. Sure. Some challenging, loving, good words um, that okay. that yeah. have a, a liberating feel to them. Something. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, let me approach it the scriptural way. Yeshua said that if anybody is truly willing to do God's will, when they look at his teachings, they will know that he was from God. So there has to be a willingness to look at the evidence. Um, I've likened this to a courtroom. If I was on a jury and yet refused to come into the court and to hear the case being presented, or refuse to look at the evidence being presented, I would be disqualified to be a juror. Or if I only was willing to listen to the uh, plaintiff's case and refuse to listen to the defendant's case, um, that shows bias, and that shows that I am unfit to be a juror. So what I would say to my Jewish people is, uh, you know, if, if you're unwilling to hear the case being made, then you're unfit to be a juror. If you're unwilling to even give a fair examination to the teachings of Jesus, then in a sense you, are, you disqualify yourself from having a legitimate uh, you, you can't say, well, I looked at the evidence and it was not compelling. No, you didn't look at the evidence. So I'm, I'm urging my people to be fair about this, to be courageous about it, because we've been told all our lives that the New Testament is off limits. So I'm calling my people to fairness of mind, or, or what I would say is intellectual integrity. I'm calling them to courage. Be willing to embrace the truth no matter where it takes you. And then I would encourage them to not be dependent on the goodwill of others, but to see your own value. Because if the fear of what other people think 
prevents you from examining the claims of Jesus the Messiah, you make yourself a slave. You have to be willing to disregard the disfavor of others for the sake of the truth. God bless Rabbi Glenn and his family. <laughs> Unbelievable. I cannot believe I am sitting here doing this. I am still blown away. I don't think it'll ever go away. God bless you, Rabbi yeah. Glenn. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. And your prayer for me, because hmm. I know you pray for me, it's one thing to be able to articulate propositional truth. It's another thing to have a living, vibrant relationship with the Lord. And I just want to make sure that I've never, that I never get to that comfortable place of being able to make the case for Jesus, but lose my first love for him. Hmm. That, that I can pray. In fact, before we, before we close, I'll, I'd like to pray that publicly. You know what, uh, Rabbi, if, if someone wanted to, listening to this broadcast, wanted to get a hold of you or email you a question or anything like that, how would, how uh, would they do sure. that? Sure. Uh, let me give you guys my uh, email address. And uh, Well, there's two ways. One, they could uh, contact me through our congregation website. And the, the website is shema.com, S-H-E-M-A.com. And uh, our website's very easy to navigate, and you can uh, leave a question and just put, you know, for Rabbi Glenn, and, and uh, it will be forwarded immediately to me. And then if people want to email me directly, my email is Glenn with two N's, the letter J, the number four, and another J at AOL.com. Glenn J, four J, at AOL.com. Perfect. Go ahead, Howard. I, or something. they can come with you guys to a Thursday there night Bible go. study. Hey. There you go. There you go. Hey, I, I'm reachable. Now tell us, uh, uh, tell people that, that are uh, listening in to this broadcast about your broadcast that you have uh, every Friday, isn't it? Uh, Fridays from 4 to 6, I broadcast on WLQV, which is AM 1500 or FM 92.7 here in Detroit. Very good. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Rabbi Glenn, God bless you. This is this was awesome. This was awesome. I want to pray for you, and then uh, and then please, will you close in prayer? And um, yeah. can you do it in Hebrew and then maybe translate it? I love hearing Hebrew. Sure. All right, <laughs> Father, in the name of Yeshua, your Son, thank you so much for who you are lord thank you for your word thank you for israel the jewish people thank you for the faithful remnant of the jewish people thank you for rabbi glenn congregation shema israel father glenn opened his heart up to us tonight and uh, he does not want to lose his love for you and his passion for you he's uh <clears throat> there's a lot of demands on him and I think he handles it well. I think. I don't know. Um, but um, give him strength and continue to give him wisdom and love for your son, 
um, more so than he's uh, ever had before. Continue to use him in, in the body of Messiah uh, to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Um, thank you for his teaching and, again, his passion for your, for your son. And, again, hear his prayer. I ask these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. 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 Ata gibor le'olam Adonai, mechaye metim ata rav You are mighty forever, O Lord. You raise the dead. You are mighty to save. And for your listeners, yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha, ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'ikonecha, yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yishem lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his favor towards you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. God bless you, bro. Guys, great to talk to you, and I will see you at the next Bible study. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. All right, blessings, <laughs> All right, bro. God bless. All right, talk to you.